Welcome to episode 45 of the Cyber Guide Podcast. I'm your host, retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Darren Mott. And in this episode, we talk to a longtime friend of mine, former DE agent Rick Cuthbert. So as always, thank you for joining the podcast this week. Uh, I apologize again for being a two weeks uh, split in between my last podcast, but I had a couple interviews scheduled and they had to readjust their time schedule. So that's kind of why I, I pushed this off a couple weeks. So hopefully as the fall gets into into play here, we'll, we'll get back to a more regular weekly schedule. But I appreciate you hanging in there for the episodes I do put out. Um, one one item of note, just for, for awareness going forward, uh, I'm going to create a new podcast starting in September that is more educationally focused, um, and it's going to call, be called the Get Cyber Smart Podcast, and I'll more information on that in a bit. I have a preview episode I've already recorded, um, just working through some things with my distribution, podcast distribution uh, company to fig- figure out how to get that put out. There's a billing issue that I'm trying to work through. So hopefully I have that out this week. Uh, you'll be able to find it. I'll post some stuff uh, on my LinkedIn uh, called Get Cyber Smart, and uh, we, you can you can see what that's all about. Today, uh, this is going to be an interesting podcast, a little different than usual. I'm speaking to uh, Rick Cuthbert, who is a retired DEA agent, spent 30 years working drug cases and working internationally and doing a whole bunch of stuff for the DEA. Rick is a longtime friend. Him and I go back to kindergarten uh, in, in upstate New York. So we've known each other a long time. I wanted to get him on just to kind of get his perspective to talk about what his career was like, because it's pretty impressive, and to throw in some cyber-related stuff uh, as far as how the DEA is dealing with the movement of drugs to the dark web and, and trying to adjust the way that they, they do their investigations. I hope you enjoy the conversation. It's a little different than, than we've had in the past, but very interesting to hear the perspective uh, of those particular uh, cases and, and, and things like that. So um, before we get there, I have a couple news items I want to talk about to inform you of for this week. The first one is a CN- CNBC article from August 10th. Uh, the title is Tech Savvy Teens Falling Prey to Online Scams Faster Than Their Grandparents, which if you're an older American, this, this honestly, this headline should bring great joy to your, to your life and a smile to your face that your, you know, millennial grandchildren are, are having the same kind of problems online that you're having. But I shouldn't laugh because it's not, not really funny that people are getting scammed this way, but just kind of goes to show the point of this article shows that cyber crime, cyber issues having good cyber hygiene impacts everyone, regardless of how technically savvy you are. So a couple bullet points from this article from Sarah O'Brien reporting, online scam complaints from the under 21 crowd to the FBI reached about 23,200 in 2020, up from 9,000 in 2017. Now it could be they just weren't reporting it earlier, but it's still a pretty big jump. The Age group reported total losses in 2020 of roughly $71 million compared to 8.3 in in 2017. And across all ages, scams last year uh, translated to a collective loss of $4.2 billion. So so in the grand scheme of things, the the teens um, not losing quite as much money, but still... It shows the huge issue that everyone is a potential target for online scammers. So if you think you don't have something someone wants, you are completely incorrect. You have money, you have access, you have something that 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 a bad guy wants to get. So let me read a little bit more from this particular article. Um, it says, the number of individuals age 20 or younger, members of Generation Z, who have grown up on smartphones and the internet, Reporting they are victims of cyber fraud has surged 156% over the last three years, according to a study by Social Catfish, an online identity verification service. That compares to 112% growth during the same time among people age 60 or older, the group with the next fastest scam growth. Now, let's be quite frank that, you know, 156% versus 112%, that's still, uh, you know, doubling or doubling and a half uh, of the number of scans. So it's not good, it's not good in either particular. Uh, respect and, and honestly, the the amount of loss by the over sixty crowd is still much more significant. So they at least the the under twenty crowd is realizing they have an issue and are trying to and don't don't give up as much money. But it's it's amazing really how the number of scams continues to increase. Will continue will continue to increase as we become a more connected world. And this is just in this country. This is just information in this country. So you can imagine how much loss there is globally to these kind of things, especially in countries where. 
where, you know, technology is, is a little more nascent than it is here. And, you know, there's a, there's a billion people in India. That is a great location to, to, for, for online scammers to target simply because there's a lot of, lot of fish in that sea. So a couple things to be that young adults need to be aware of that they're getting targeted on our job scams. Obviously the young are looking for jobs. So there's ways they're getting the scam on there. Online influencer, influencer scams. Obviously this is not a, a particular scam that the elderly is going to fall to, but the, the, the genesis of this is uh, involves fake social media accounts that mimic an influencer hold a contest, and then ask the winner to pay a fee or provide their bank account number to get their prize. This is a common scam across all different scams. And so, you know, anyone who wins a prize and is asked to give them bank account information should immediately run to the hills because obviously there is no money coming from you giving them your bank account information. Also, online shopping scams is a big one, romance scams, which everybody falls to. So if you want more information on this, go to ic3.gov. If you feel you're the victim of an online scam such as this or your child or someone or your or really your your elderly parent or what have you is the victim of some kind of online scam, as I always say, make sure you report it to IC3.cov. Let them know the nature of the scam. Any information you have to provide to them is useful for the FBI to perhaps conduct an investigation or at least gather information. Because the way this kind of works is obviously if you're a victim of an eBay scam for $5,000, chances are the FBI will not open a case on that. It's just, it's resource limit, limiting for, for, for lack of a better way to state it. However, if the same, um, same item is purchased by a thousand people at $5,000, that's $5 million loss. The FBI will open that investigation and try to look into that because obviously the number of victims is huge. The amount of loss is huge. And so, um, you know, will you get your money back? Probably not. Let's be quite honest. If you send your money to a scammer online, overseas, whatever, it's probably not coming back. But there are those exceptions where that does happen. So I'm not saying, you know, give up everything. I mean, give up and, and move on, but um, certainly report it. It, it. it will do nothing but help others down the road. Second article, uh, you've probably seen it. It's not a big surprise. It's the T-Mobile data breach that occurred last week, I believe. So this is an article from Wired. I find that Wired gets a lot of these things really good. So I usually use them as a point of informational learning. So this is Brian Barrett reporting. Um, and the, the title of his article is the T-Mobile data breach is the one you can't ignore. And I saw an article where we're really getting numb to hack, uh, cyber hack um, news stories. People aren't paying attention to it anymore because it just happens so frequently. It's just everybody's just kind of used to it. But still, you should look to these, try to get information out of it on how to protect yourself. If you're a T-Mobile customer, obviously, this is an issue you need to be aware of simply because your data has been compromised. So let me read from the article a little bit. Not all data breaches are created equal. None of them are good, but they do come in varying degrees of bad. And given how regularly they happen, it's understandable that you may have been inured to the news. When, like I said, surveys show that's the case. Still, a T-Mobile breach that hackers claim involved the data of 100 million people deserves your attention, especially if you're a customer of the uncarrier. I guess that's a, that's a logo or a trademark term they use or something. So as first reported by Motherboard on Sunday, someone on the dark web claims to have obtained the data of 100 million people from T-Mobile servers and is selling a portion of it for six Bitcoin or about $280,000. The trove includes not only names, phone numbers, physical addresses, but also more sensitive data like social security numbers, driver's license information, IMEI numbers, unique identifiers tied to each mobile device. And this is all problematic in the sense that there's a there's a another associated crime to this called uh, SIM swapping where bad guys are able to duplicate your phone essentially. And this is how they get away SMS text multi-factor authentication. I'll probably do an episode next week talking about SMS um, SMS multi-factor authentication issues. Not saying you shouldn't use it, just that there's, there's an inherent risk associated with that now, which requires you using or, or should push you to using a more um, app-based thing on your phone. I, I use what's called Google Authenticator, and you create these unique multi-factor keys for sites you want to use. And so you have the, you're the only one with access to those numbers, as opposed to if you ask for a SMS call 
uh, if someone has SIM swapped your phone, they will get that SMS call as well, and they could use that to get into your account. So, you know, it's not a it, it's a it's a pretty big issue. Um, how many people are being impacted by it? I'm not really sure, but other sensitive data in this particular breach, like your social security number, driver's license information, can be used for identity theft. Let's be honest. Chances are your social security number has been compromised by some some some. Uh, online compromise in the past, but still it's not good for that information uh, to get out there. So, you, you know, you really have to monitor your credit. If you're a T-Mobile customer, you should go to all the credit bureaus and freeze your credit, essentially meaning that you, you can't get credit cards or, or acquire loans uh, until you unlock that credit information. Now, if you need to, if you need to get a credit card, obviously you don't want to be doing that, but that's just one way you can go to protect your information. If you're really concerned, obviously there are sites like LifeLock that are really honestly more than just monitoring services. They're not so much really protecting your data. They're just monitoring it for activity. Um, and by the time LifeLock contacts you, the bad guy could be already down the road with thousands of dollars stolen in your name. So all that to be said, you know, be aware of it. If you are a T-Mobile customer, be concerned. If you're just a regular customer, there was a news article I saw that someone was selling AT&T data. Apparently it's also this T-Mobile data. They're just saying it's AT&T data because really if you're a bad guy and there's personal information, you care where it came from, you certainly do not. You'll just take it and you'll move on and, and do what you want with that. So again, uh, if you're a T-Mobile customer, be aware, be careful, change passwords, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but that was a big particular data breach from this week. And then probably the worst one, which you probably won't hear a whole lot of because the media is not going to say the government does bad things. But this is from securityintelligence.com. Uh, and it, the title is U.S. State Department hack has major security implications. Um, oh, I'm sorry. You know what? I apologize. That is the wrong. That is the wrong article. That is from a couple of years ago. So let me, I, I picked the wrong one there. So let me, I'm going to, this is going to be really great podcast listening here as I go through and look for the article I actually meant to pull up. That's good planning. Okay, so this is the article I have. And the funny thing is, I could, I, it was hard to find. I had to, I, I kind of searched around um, and I'm finding this on an Indian news site, techstory.in. And the title is U.S. State Department reportedly hit by a cyber attack in recent weeks. This is Ashish Sharawat uh, reporting uh, today, actually. This is a news article from today. And it's according to a Fox News correspondent, the U.S. State Department was targeted by a cyber attack and the Department of Cyber Defense Command was notified of a potentially significant breach. Neither of these two things is really a great thing. According to Reuters, the State Department has not encountered any substantial disruptions in its activities, have not been hampered in any manner. According to Fox News, the hack is thought to have happened a few weeks ago. Uh, and according to the reporter's tweet thread, it's unclear when it was initially found, the scope of the intrusion, and whether or not activities are still at risk or likewise unknown. Uh, a quote here from the uh, from this article, the State Department has been hit by a cyber attack and notifications of possible serious breaches were made by the Department of Defense Cyber Command. So I'm assuming that is Cyber Command made the notification to the State Department. In other words, they found that there was some kind of issue. And with all the stuff going on with Afghanistan, not surprising that the State Department would be targeted because their defense is probably down a little bit as they deal with other things. But it goes to show how difficult really it is to secure anybody's network. So hopefully we'll see more of this as the week progresses and more information comes out on this, whether we'll find out who did it, the attribution, how it occurred. And we're never going to find that out because that information never tends to come out. But the point being, there was a presidential directive, um, an executive order several months ago about how we needed, how companies needed to in, increase their cybersecurity. Well, let's be honest, the government can't do it themselves. So, so they're not they're not following the executive order. If State Department is is still getting hacked, and I'm sure they're not the only ones. I'm sure if we looked at smaller smaller departments, Department of Education, Department of Labor, Department of Health and Human Services, chances are they have data data breach issues there that just haven't been reported, reported, detected or identified yet. And I make all this point just to say, if you're a small to medium company, it's very hard for you to come up to the standards that the government is requiring all of us to come up to at some point in order to secure our data. So uh, you have to find other ways to do that. Um, I'm going to do a, a shameless sales pitch a little bit here that ideally my Get Cyber Smart program that I'm creating will help with that somewhat, help to kind of bridge that gap. Is going to be perfect? Are you going to, you know, is all your data going to be protected by following my system? Absolutely not. No, no, product, no item, no technology 
can guarantee 100% protection from a data breach. I mean, if you can do zero trust, you can do application whitelisting, they all are going to, they're all going to be flaws within that, that someone detects eventually and gets around. But it still creates a much larger defensive fence around your data than if you do nothing or you do whatever the government does for their stuff, which is limited. Because let's be honest, if you are a very strong cybersecurity professional, you might work for the government for a little while, but some private sector company is going to hire you away for three times, three times the salary. So sure, certainly there are people within the government still that are patriotic and working to, to do the thing, but I guarantee you their resources are low, their, their personnel are low. There's another article I saw, I'm not going to talk about it in great detail here, but the, the state of Florida has a cyber technology department. I forget what it's called, but the article basically said they can't fill their positions. Half the positions are empty because they can't find people for it. I'm seeing that in the company I work for. It's hard to find cyber analysts and cybersecurity folks because there's just not that many people here. So I say all that to say if you have a child in college, tell them go in the cybersecurity world. They will make a ton of money uh, and they can really help out folks doing that. So that's the news of the week. Kind of interesting, kind of a potpourri of different things. Um, and so with that, let me get to Rick Cuthbert. Well, it is my pleasure to welcome on the podcast, perhaps my oldest friend, my oldest, my my earliest memory of going to a friend's house was with this gentleman when we were five years old in upstate New York. So I want to welcome to the Cyber Guy podcast, Rick Cuthbert, retired DEA special agent, and he is coming to us live from his home in Arizona. Rick, welcome. Thank you, Darren. It's good to be here. It's good to be chatting with you. And uh I concur with everything. A long <laughs> yeah. time. I don't know uh, why. Time friend, my friend. I remember very little from from kindergarten or fifth grade, but I remember going to your house and playing with that that football metal game that you you put the players in a position, you turn it on, they vibrate, and they all end up going to the side. I, I remember that for some reason. That's the first time I ever saw that thing. It was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. No, that mm -hmm. was. Uh, I know the game you're talking about well, and. Uh... Yeah, it was fun. It was just, it was, it was growing up, as you know, we'll get into other stuff, but it was just a great place to grow up as a kid. It was yep. a long ways away from what you and I chose as career paths and uh, probably helped us with our career path. I think we, you know, had some good teachers. We had good uh, interaction with our parents and stuff like that. So it was great. It was a great place to grow up. And yeah, I finally remember going to your, your house, which is right next to the great. Yep. Right next yeah, to the That was pretty cool. Yep. Yep. Funny. Yeah. So, all right. So let's talk your career arc. We can, talk Norwood, New York later if we have time, but yeah, yeah, so let's yeah. talk about your, so this is, this is kind of a unique interview on this podcast. I usually talk to cyber folks, but obviously, you know, us right. knowing each other, you know, going down the paths we did, I, I think if, if we were to look back at our high school years, would we say when we were in our mid fifties, we'd be talking about our law enforcement careers in the federal government. You might say yes. Cause I know you kind of were thinking about that for a long time. I probably would not have, but, but here we are. So how did you, what did you do prior to the DEA? Cause I assume like most federal agencies, you can't just run right into it immediately or maybe you can, but when did you know this was the path you wanted to take and then talk about some of the places you worked and how that looks. Um, what's that? No, I said, go ahead. Just kind of give us your career arc. How'd you get into it? What'd you do beforehand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it, I, I knew at a fairly young age, I would say by, geez, 15 or 16, you know, between Hill Street Blues and Miami Vice, watching that as a kid, I just said, hey, this seems like a pretty cool thing to do. I mean, uh, I wouldn't say I was <laughs> completely dialed in with the politics, but, you know, you had the Ronald Reagan war on drugs and that was just right there. I mean, kind of as a, um, you know, high school student looking to go to a university that was kind of front and center for me. So, you know, my, I, I chose criminal justice. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I stayed doing. Um, you know, throughout, you know, my years at going to school and in my senior year, actually, I interviewed in San Diego with the, with, you know, the drug enforcement administration. And I was offered a job. I, at the time, I was doing an internship with the California Bureau of Narcotic Enforcement and with the San Diego Police Department at the same time. Um, so I got to know DEA guys. They were working on at that time was called Operation Triple Neck. It was kind of the start of the methamphetamine uh, explosion in the late 80s in uh, initially Southern California. And then obviously it kind of took all all over the U.S. Um, but yeah, that was kind of that was the start of it. I, you know, by 22, I 
had been accepted by the DEA, started the background check. We were on a, a hiring freeze, I think in 88. Um, so that kind of held everything up. So I just stayed. The uh, California Department of Justice, they hired me as an investigative aide. I did that for the better part of about 13 months. And I also worked part-time with actually a private investigator firm. I just, I would type up their reports and stuff like that. It was a lot of uh, ex-cops who maybe I would say their writing <laughs> skills weren't wonderful. Um, so we did... So we just helped him with some of that kind of stuff, just investigative writing. Um, but yeah, within 16 months of graduating, I had my academy date and uh, a 23 turning 24 year old, I was off to, you know, that time you're, you're a loan facility, the FBI in, uh, in Quantico. Mm -hmm. And uh, that kind of got it started. Yep. That really got it started. Yeah, it's funny. Um, what did the so just out of curiosity, what did did you guys were you guys embedded directly into the FBI Academy? Because I know when I, when I went through in '99, you were they were working on a, a standalone DEA facility, but um, or maybe it already yeah, existed. You yeah. know, Jim, I can't remember how that worked, but no, we were we were side by side with you guys. Um, you know, occasionally we would share the uh, the athletic facilities, whether we were out running the trails or stuff. We used to go run the track tank trails with you guys um we would sh you know we wouldn't share the rain necessarily but we would see your hrt guys out there and stuff like that kind of doing more of the the long range shooting and stuff like that but yeah no we were kind of uh part and parcel we worked directly with you guys um you know we had a bit of fun obviously at each other's expense um you know joke good nature joking and stuff like that but um yeah no we were co-located we were on different floors, but that really was the only separation. I mean, we would bump see each other in the, in the hallways and, you know, you got to know people from the different agencies, which was a good thing. Sure. I, I still look back on it as I went through my career and I went through the different locations that I worked at, you know, cooperation, as you know, that's just, mm -hmm. uh, that's such a huge part of what we do every day. So sure. it was good, but yeah, from, I'll go right into it, you know, right from, the academy. I went back out to San Diego, which was my office of hire, and I had been assigned to Los Angeles Field Division. Uh, I worked in Los Angeles for for nine years. It was great. I, there's guys that I still am in touch with daily that I worked with in LA, um, and we get to talk about stuff. We get to go over it. We, you know, my buddy just sent me a uh, a car chase video, and he goes, "Hey, remember when that guy jumped the curb, missed your?" Chevy Lumina when I was on the job and he and I were partners because LAPD had, had uh, kind of encroached on the, uh, on the surveillance and the guy got wind of it and we're driving down the street. You know, I always love going back to this and a guy's whipping kilos of cocaine out the street. So we're diverting uh, some of our law enforcement personnel to, to go pick up the kilos of Coke. So some kid doesn't, you know, go run out there and grab these bricks of cocaine that are flying out the window. And then he finally, you know, crashes his car into a, uh, into somebody's house. And anyway, that goes on and on, but yeah, LA was great. LA was, I would say, if you're going to go to a big city and you get to do it at the beginning of your career, it's, it's awesome. I mean, we got to work cases targeting the Columbia cartels, you know, the Mexican cartels, it was just a great place to start and uh, a great place to learn, you know, and ha as we progressed with our investigations, you know, some obviously being kind of more informant, driven and then obviously kind of getting back into more of the technology aspect and the different ways that you can, you can do investigations. But yeah, LA was great. It was, uh, <clears throat> it was nine years of just absolute nonstop go, go, go. It was, as you know, you know, I was recently married at the time and, you know, my wife was, you know, doing her thing. So she stayed busy with work. We had no children. So you know, going to work whenever we went to work and, you know, work until 10 o'clock at night, midnight, overnight, whatever you had to do. We just did it. And you didn't think about it. It was a fun job. Mm -hmm. It was, I, I would say, I was jokingly say, if I can't play left field for the Boston Red Sox and God knows I don't have the talent to do that, <laughs> then I'd, I'd rather be in a group working in a, in a law enforcement setting. So let me ask you this question real quick. For, as far as like the, the investigations for the, obviously everyone knows it's a drug enforcement administration and it's focused on, on drug investigations, but do you split it out? So like, uh, so let's ask this question. How many agents in the LA field office using that as the, since that's your first office, how many agents did you have there? 
Oh, geez. We had probably had at least a couple hundred, Darren. And I would okay. say within each group, you, you typically worked within a task force. So we had what they called at the time LAPD majors, which was kind of their more seasoned detectives. We had LASO, same thing, their majors teams. So these were the detectives from those departments that worked big, I I won't even say multi-kilo, I, I mean 50, 100, 150 kilogram cocaine cases, which was kind of the start of it when we first got out there in the, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. <clears throat> so that was a big part of it. And we worked with all the police departments, you know, for those folks that listen in and, and know Southern California, you know, Southgate Police Department, wonderful police department. We worked with their entire team. Their entire team would work with us. They would have eight, 10 detectives on their unit, um, their drug unit. And we kind of worked seamlessly with those groups. So, you know, by the end of the day, when you started to add up all the law enforcement, geez, you were, you're probably talking, you know, well over a, a thousand, 1200, you know, law enforcement drug mm-hmm. investigators working and, in the LA County area. And did they specialize? So like you had a group that did the cocaine investigation, the group that did the methamphetamine, a group that did the heroin, or was it, was it that, uh, what's compartmentalized or did it, you just kind of worked whatever came your way? You know, the groups were kind of, they're across the board. So our group initially, we were kind of the Colombian drug trafficking organization that we started out with initially. <clears throat> we eventually went into in the early 90s more of a money laundering Panama group and then from there we started doing the um, the Mexican methamphetamine mm. drug trafficking organizations and that's when we started to kind of you know going into more of the you know the, the when the wiretap stuff started to take off a little bit more so that was more towards the late 90s but you had general enforcement groups too um, that existed within LA you know we have airport groups um, so it was kind of, it's, it's kind of across the board. We, I, I was always in a group that was specialized. We kind of had a, a specific mission mm-hmm. and that was kind of where we were directed to go with that, but it, it, it is across the board for sure with some of the other groups. Gotcha. Gotcha. So LA obviously was not the only place you work. So where else did you, where, and you don't have to get in great details on all of them, but what was your kind of, how did you move around? Cause as with most federal law enforcement, you're very few people stay in one office the whole time. Um, where'd you have to go? Right. So um, I was in Los Angeles for almost 10 years from L.A. I went up to Salem, Oregon, uh, which is about 45 minutes south of Portland. Um, There I worked the same thing in a task force. We worked with the Salem Police Department, the Oregon State Police, and some of the um, National Guard folks did a lot of our intel work when we were up there. Uh, Oregon was great. Again, uh, you know, it was about a six year tour in Oregon from Oregon. I, I promoted to Phoenix, but while I was in Oregon, it was, we did probably one of the best cases, you know, in my close to 30 year career, um, the highest, you know, achievement award we can get as an agent for, for DEA anyways, the administrator's award. And, and we did receive the administrator's award for a case we did against a, a Mexican uh, cocaine trafficking organization. And we actually, during the investigation, seized more powder cocaine than had ever been seized in the history of drug investigations in Oregon. So it's a very successful case. And, you know, I always go back to, you know, just use first names, but uh, Salem PD detective, first name is Scott and uh, Oregon state police detective, Darren, they were, they were just smart, smart people. They, they knew their terrain. They really had a good understanding of what was happening around them. And that's really what directed us um, with those investigations. But, I'll go back. I can go back to that and talk to that a little bit. But on afterwards, I went to uh, Phoenix, Arizona, where I promoted as a supervisor, um, which was great. I, I got and again, we primarily worked as a wiretap group at that point. And at that point, I oversaw a, a task force. And I, you know, some of there were two uh, FBI special agents actually in that task force, along with uh, a couple of ATF, uh, an IRS agent. We had Maricopa County sheriffs and the uh, Phoenix Police Department had given us uh, detectives as well. So <clears throat> we were, you know, it was a big task force. It was about 18 people. So at times it, it, it was a bit of a heavy lift with, with all the different uh, folks in there and stuff like that. But we, again, we did great stuff. I, I was very, very happy. Uh, guys worked together seamlessly and it was a fun place to work. We had a good U S attorney's office. Uh, again, I'll just, you know, 
Brian was was who we did a lot of our stuff with at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and and he was actually a prosecutor down in Columbia. He was assigned, so he was just super super knowledgeable. He understood the workings of these kind of drug trafficking organizations. So for us, it uh, it kind of made it easy for us as far as when we were gathering the evidence and how we were putting stuff together. Phoenix, uh, I, I did my tour there in Phoenix, and usually after you promote, you kind of have to do your headquarters time, and I was very lucky. I got selected to go to a, a, a pretty cool facility in Virginia where we worked with, you know, at the time it was 31 other law enforcement agencies. Um, so it was a great place to work. I, you know, I, I worked with a number of great FBI people that I still call friends and we are in touch with and, um, you know, that you got to learn a lot because you have mm-hmm. all these different agencies, you have all these people coming in, you have all these people cooperating and all these people that work together towards trying to do the same thing of saying, hey, we really, really want to, you know, look at these big, huge, large scale investigations. And we we're able to do it at this headquarters facility where they brought, you know, kind of all the powers that be. So that was a great assignment. Um, when I was there, I, I did some work with the RCMP and, and some of our Canadian counterparts in that kind of led me to the uh, the final uh, tour with my career. And I actually got to work as the country attache for the U.S. Embassy up in Ottawa, Canada, <clears throat> which was a great job. I mean, again, you just, as you know, you don't do anything internationally without complete cooperation and the sharing of information. And, and, and also having an understanding, every country has its... Um, abilities to share certain information and, and certain things that they have to work within their parameters, but understanding that going into it and having a pretty good understanding of how to work with that. It was great. So yeah, I career wise, I feel very, very fortunate. It was good. So that, that's, that's, uh, that's 30 years condensed down to, I guess about uh, (laughs) About, six or seven minutes. Right. Exactly. So, so (laughs) over your 30 years, obviously, I'm sure you saw DEA investigations change as far as how they were started, how they were managed, how they were operated, how they were looked at from a political level, from headquarters, from, from DC and things like that. So did first, so this is a two part question. What are the good, what are the elements that make up a good DEA investigation? And did those elements stay with you for 30 years or did they, did the, did they evolve kind of like the drug trade evolved and we'll eventually get to the technical part. So if, for those of you who are here for the cyber piece, that cyber piece is going to come here in a little bit, but just understanding, (laughs) you know, understanding, you know, how does a, when you started, obviously you, you arrest somebody as they've got drugs, but that's not kind of, you guys aren't the picking up the, well, maybe you are to start with, but picking up the, the low level drug deal. You're looking, you're trying to enterprise investigate it. I assume tried to move up to the higher level. So tell maybe I'm wrong. So I certainly could be incorrect. I never worked a drug case myself. So, so how do you, how do you start one that makes the good elements and how have it changed? Yeah, Darren, you're actually pretty much spot on. Um, So the groups I always worked on just because of with LA and in, in Oregon, I worked as, you know, kind of that proverbial, what you would call a street agent or what DEA would call a street agent, but you're, uh, criminal investigator. It, you know, what's funny part to your question about, yeah, things obviously evolve. I, you know, I would say the one thing that I will always say about criminal organizations are they're, they're as wealthy as any wealthy uh, U.S. company or international company, right? They have, they have unlimited resources. And I, and I think it's the first thing that everybody should really know. You're really, really going after some, some pretty smart, people that really are understanding how to do stuff. I used to always say, I go, you know, as I evolved through my career, I kind of would say, God, it's like Costco, right? They set up all these different places and they set up these distribution places and they've got a, a place to bring in products. They got a place to collect, obviously their, their financial aspect of what they draw in with that. And then they set up all these different networks to kind of compartmentalize. So yeah, do we evolve? Yeah. Do you keep the stuff that you have initially? Absolutely. I always look back on it. Uh, the biggest case that DEA ever did, they seized uh, 22 tons of cocaine, which seems unheard of, um, in Silmar, California. That case was started with a retired truck driver who just happened to be out on his normal route, like getting coffee at 7-Eleven. It was something silly like that. I'm going back 30 years, so my memory's not wonderful on this stuff. But he just, he, he called in to the DEA and said, I don't know what's going on but something's going on. <laughs> and so they went out, they interviewed him a couple of times 
you know, uh, uh, these cameras got set up. They, we started an investigation. I was there for the very, very tail end of it. Um, so, yeah, does does it start a lot of times, some of the times with the citizens, the people out there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you get it. Does it start with informants? Absolutely. You get people that are, you know, the the term no honor amongst thieves. There, There is a bit of truth to that, obviously. Um, when people see things kind of going sideways, they they sometimes jump ship and, and they can be, you know, it's unfortunate. We used to have a term that, that said, you don't catch the, uh, the devil working with angels. And uh, you know, there was some truth to that, right? I mean, you did have to kind of get into a bit of murkiness and stuff. So yeah, initially that that's kind of part of it, but yeah, building it up and starting out your point about, we didn't necessarily start at the smaller lower ends. You're absolutely right. And that's when it became a big part of being able to work with local law enforcement. I I would say anybody who's worked with the DEA knows that our kind of where we really get our bread and butter from is working with our partners in the local communities and the law enforcement officers. You know, when I think back to Oregon and I think back to Darren and I think back to Scott, those were, they were, they were, you know, walk the street, you know, drive a patrol car kind of cops that got information and they produced information. Did it evolve? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you can't you can't go after the, the sophisticated criminals today without, you know, you utilizing the, you know, your electronic surveillances that you have. I mean, how these people communicate, how these people interact with one another, um, you've got to be able to track that stuff. It just it's it moves too fast and and those are the things. So yeah, you want a good start with with the communities and as you know, you, you've moved around to in your career. We're not there for 20 years. We're not typically there for 25 years. We're not there for 30 years. You've got to rely on the people that are physically there in those communities and go after it that way. And obviously we've got our international partners that mm-hmm. we work at, you know, DEA works in, you know, more countries than, than a lot of the other law enforcement agencies. So we get a lot of Intel that way too. So th- those are the big part of the components of it. And I would think that the media and like, I don't mean like the media, like the news media, but I mean like the entertainment mm-hmm. media does not do us a favor in the way that they portray us as federal agents that we rush in and we take over the case and the local guys are always ticked off and say, oh, here come the feds they are going to take everything. I, I never found that to be an issue myself. And I got to believe you got, and, and your organization does a lot more with the local guys than the bureau does necessarily because of our, our scope is different. But uh, did you ever have that issue where, oh, here comes the DEA, they're going to take over our case we're going to be screwed blah 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 never once nope never <laughs> once and you're you're spot on and you're right the media doesn't do it but you know it makes a good it makes for a good tv show right sure, creating right, a little bit exactly, of uh, yes. creating a little bit of rivalry and that's always the one thing you want to try to get across the public's like listen we were all we all try to work together i mean i i always go back to you know i happen to be working in headquarters at this uh you know kind of intelligence community facility when the boston marathon bombing happened mm-hmm. we had a you know, the running statement, you know, the big boss there, Carl, and then my immediate supervisor, uh, Derek, you know, their favorite saying was, hey, listen, everybody's badges and credentials goes into the basket at the beginning of the of the day. And everybody got to have that understanding that we're all law enforcement officers just working together. And we're all just, you know, trying to make this place a better place. You know, you do want it to be better. You know, we're, you know, do we have the other agents that I've worked with with my own agency that at times can be a bit grating and probably ticked off some local law enforcement. Absolutely. I, I have no doubt. Are the majority, the vast majority of them in there to say, well, listen, we're all here to work together. We're all mm-hmm. here to try to accomplish a common goal. This is, we are trying to genuinely make this a better place. We, you know, we believe in what we're doing. We're, we're not here to run roughshod over people. And, uh, we don't need, I, I, I don't know how, you know, to what degree this is. Our success is so such in the hands of our local and state law enforcement and our, and, and just the different agencies that we work with. We're just, we're not going to accomplish what we accomplish without working with everybody else. So no, I, I've got friends within, you know, the DEA, I've got friends with other federal agencies. I've got close friends in state and local law enforcement um, that I still see. You know, we, mm-hmm. you know, my wife and I, we travel around and stuff like that. So, yeah, your, your assessment's right. And 
but you're also right. I, I think TV probably doesn't. <laughs> I will do say. Us any favors I will say that. there there is one organization I could I could tend to do without, but I'm not going to mention their name here on this podcast. I don't want them to stop <laughs> listening. Secret Service. Okay, so let's talk about your proudest investigation. I, I'm assuming it's the Oregon one. So uh, how to predicate it? How to get started? Um, you know, we don't have to yeah, talk about not you know, get into deep specifics, but talk about kind of the fun stuff. What was I got to assume if it was if it if well, won your your administrator's award and it was that successful there had to be parts of it though still that were just had i mean humorous anecdotes that like do you believe this is happening here this is crazy so so tell us about it yeah no yeah and i i would kind of say so and you know it's hard to kind of pick one because i think about the times that i worked in los angeles yeah the oregon case i mean that that just was unprecedented because just in oregon they just hadn't done a case of that scale um they really weren't doing um, you know, what we would call, you know, it's just, you know, the wiretaps and stuff like that. That just wasn't being done at that time to the degree that we utilized it and that we were really able to uncover this huge, huge um, drug trafficking organization, you know, kind of between Portland and Salem, Oregon. Um, and just the volume of coke that they were bringing in was, was you know, pretty amazing. So, but it all started with, again, <laughs> you know, people in the neighborhood that that knew. I, I will go back to Scott and Darren, um, that knew them. That that they compiled information, and and Darren had been, you know, the Oregon State Police have been doing a ton of work in the area, and they kind of had a pretty solid um, idea of what was happening. And they and they came to us, you know, they came to the DEA and said, "Hey, listen, this is what we think is going on. You know, we we know you guys are more." Um, kind of into the wiretap stuff and we just think that's what it's going to take because these guys are you know they're great they're 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 going to these locations they're dropping off cars or they're um and it's a bit of a farming community so you can you can kind of hide out a little bit and you you know trying to do a surveillance out in the middle of nowhere is is very very difficult um and uh, you know again public tv or or the the movies that they don't always do us favors. Yeah, we don't have fifteen airplanes at our disposal <laughs> to right. fly twenty. No drones. Yeah, no drones flying over there. <laughs> right. Yeah. To fly air surveillance. So a lot of this is just the man part. You get out and you do it yourself. Um and you know, to your point, getting some lucky breaks, you know, where you get these two people that meet up and they're just kind of oblivious to the people around them. And they, you know, the next thing you know is they're they're throwing away packaging material for for coke and just not really being good about doing it or, or utilizing you know kind of a burn site at this farming facility that they were kind of utilizing to do a bunch of different stuff so you get the breaks like that i i would say for the fun stuff i always go back to la i i think i'd been on the job for three weeks and i remember coming home and uh walking in and and, and my wife jennifer who you know very well darren uh saying oh my god this is just like the movie heat with uh with Val Kilmer and Al Pacino. I'm like, we're you know, we're you know, you get the SMGs issued and we've got shotguns and you're running down the streets of Los Angeles. You can't think in any way, shape, or form this can be real. And you're chasing these people on foot with guns drawn, diving across cars, you know, we still remember, you know, chasing this one guy leaping over a fence and you know, he of course falls and breaks his arm and then you have to show up in court the next day and he's in a you know, with a cast on it and the judge is looking at you like, so what happened here? And we're like, you fell over a fence. And they're like, yeah, okay. He fell over a fence. And you're just like, no, honestly, he fell over <laughs> a fence. That's how we caught him. The guy was twice as fast as me, but yeah, it was, it was just those fun stories. But yeah, to the Oregon case, it was just learning about the stuff, having the cooperation with really our, our Los Angeles office and just the information that they were able to gather. And that's, you know, we were able, and we use the term, spin them up on a wire. We were able to provide information. So they were able to do a wiretap on the group that was working with the Mexican cartel that was coordinating through this Los Angeles organization that was coordinating with the Oregon one. But it was, it was kind of done in reverse because I still remember going back to headquarters and we, we got this award and, and we sat there and, and and we talked to one of our, you know, headquarter, as we say, muckety mucks. And they were like, you know, it's really impressive what you guys did out of this little tiny office in Oregon, because you guys were really the kind of the catalyst that got every, everybody else going on the case. And, and I, I appreciated, you know, it was, it was a complimentary 
comment, obviously, and I believe well-intentioned, <laughs> but uh, yeah. And, and, and working in Los Angeles, I, I had done it. I mean, I, I knew about it, right? I, I mean, I had worked in a huge city. I'd worked with all these other, all these other people. So I had a pretty good understanding of what was going on. And I felt fortunate to be able to pick up the phone and call these people and have these teams, you know, and, I mean, you had groups that you were working, you know, they were following people through the middle of the night for you from Los Angeles all the way up into the uh, Oregon border. So yeah, it was, it was a fun case. And, and we had, again, we had a great attorney. Um, you know, he was, he was difficult. I mean, he was not the easiest guy to, to try mm-hmm. to do wiretap affidavits. And, they, and again, that's one thing I always like to try to put people's minds at ease. Yeah getting a wiretap is is not a 45 minute TV episode of trying to do it. I mean, this is months, this is months of hard, hard work. Um, and, and going out and listen, we all, we want to go after the right people, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to be listening to somebody we shouldn't be. And if we, you know, if that accidentally happens, you just, you're off of it and you're on to the next thing, but it was just the cooperation of being able to work with everybody. And then, you know, the fun times of being able to talk to the case after the fact, you know, you know, you've got 35 defendants, you've got a lot of work to do. You've got a lot of evidence to pour through. So yeah, it, it was a great case. It was a fun case. LA was, if you can't have fun as a DEA agent in LA, then I, I guess you just go find something else to do. <laughs> LA was far and away the, the most fun. You know, we, you know, we, we investigated movie stars, we investigated singers, um, you know, and the whole nine yards, you know, got to travel to, to Las Vegas to interview different people that were involved in different things. So it was great. It was great. And then you got to work with, you know, some of the old time, old time police officers and their stories. So the Oregon case, you said 35 defendants. So when you took that down, was there a lot of resistance to, I mean, I assume it was a huge organizational, um, probably an administrative nightmare trying to get everybody together to figure out how to arrest all these folks at the same time, or did were they just was it just an indict them and invite them? No, it was the first. Uh, it was we had about 200 law enforcement officers from around the state in Oregon. We also called in resources from the state of Washington, um, and I still remember we gave the you know Scott and I gave the briefing uh, at a gymnasium at the uh, Salem High School, um, and then we would. It was about, it was literally a two day briefing. Um, and then we just broke it down and, uh, you know, you, you're looking at about 45 different locations that you have to do search warrants at and then the coordination and then getting everybody back in a court. So yeah, no, this was a, uh, it was a heavy lift for sure. But again, it was, yeah, it, was good. it worked, it worked pretty flawlessly. We got all the people that we wanted to get. Um, yeah, so it was a good, it was a good case, fun case. They all plead guilty or do you have to go to trial? We um, went to trial on just three of them. Everybody else pled. Mm-hmm. Um, they were convicted. Uh, yeah, so it was a great, you know, we had to do, uh, you know, WITSEC with with some of the folks that had helped us out and stuff like that with the case. So, yeah, it, it, it basically, it checked all the boxes. I would say whenever you go back there and, you know, you became a supervisor, you know, part of this is just checking out the boxes. Are you doing everything that you possibly can do mm-hmm. to do this thing? And are you utilizing everything that you have at your disposal? I, I can say with that case. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so let's talk about using everything at your disposal. This is still ostensibly a cyber podcast. So how have computers and technology changed the way that the DEA approaches their drug investigations? Tremendously. I mean, I think back to the days when we would start and a lot of our cases did really start more, I would say um, a lot of informant driven and a lot of our cases were actually driven by the investigations that we would conduct out of our South American offices, Bolivia, Colombia, Peru, Mexico. Um, That really kind of focused DEA, I would say kind of in the late seventies, eighties, and, you know, obviously you had a lot of investigations going on where you had what you talked earlier, right? You had the person that you arrested, you flipped, and you kind of worked your way up the food chain that way. And, and honestly, it's, it's you can only go so far that way. That's pretty tough to do. You really kind of have to have the inner workings of these investigations. So, yeah, I, I would say it changed tremendously from when we started out in Los Angeles 
and you worked as primarily a, a surveillance where you've, you just observed a lot, um, you gathered information, you know, you followed, you know, we always say follow the money and it's, it's a pretty good, pretty good approach in a lot of our investigations too. You start learning how to do the wiretaps and whether that's on whatever communication they would utilize, um, you know, stuff that I think you guys have probably been doing, you know, certainly long before we had been doing it. And I think about the first, you know, wiretap case I did, I was actually, I, you know, kind of got my start with a FBI agent in New Mexico and uh, they turned us on to this, you know, Mexican, huge Mexican methamphetamine group in, uh, in Los Angeles, but that's what kind of got us started. And, and, you know, we worked with that FBI agent kind of flawlessly and he provided a ton of information, provided, you know, the affidavits and a lot of the background information that we needed. We were able to go out to Albuquerque and coordinate with them and, and learn about some of the bad guys and stuff like that. It was kind of the start of it for us. I think as we progressed, you know, and I think about the facility that, you know, I got to work at at headquarters when you think about things like, you know, the tragedy that happened with the uh, terrorist attack in New York, <clears throat> that's what really kind of brought all the communities together and really kind of opened up everybody alike. Listen, there's information out there. We just have to be one step ahead or we at least got to be working simultaneously and kind of figure out this kind of stuff. So, yeah, it, to your point, this the stuff that's more in your realm, Darren, that's that's where we are now that that's you know i, I don't know if it's you know 55 percent of our cases or 95 percent of our cases but it's mm -hmm. certainly the majority um and i would lean towards probably the higher number with the whole thing so yeah you, you've got people that that have a, a greater knowledge to it you know dea is we, we have a cyber unit now at dea that's very you know that's that's since i've retired uh, four years ago, uh, it was just, it was funny. I was talking to a, to a supervisor in Burlington, Vermont about it the other day and, uh, just an interesting conversation. So it's, yeah, it's, it's certainly molded where we are. So is your cyber group targeting drug dealers on the dark web and things like that? Is that their focus? Correct. Okay. Gotcha. Yep. How much of that has moved yep. to the, to that part of the, of the internet, the, the part that a lot that, you know, you have to kind of work at to get to how much, how much, of, maybe, let me phrase the questions. How much of the DEA's work has moved towards sure. that? Um, you know, this will be a bit of a guess for me, you know, being <laughs> removed from the yeah, job. Find out a fair for, question uh, on my part. So sorry. Well, you know, no, it's, it, it's a, you know, I, I would say probably a quarter of our investigations are going that way, mm. Darren. I mean, a lot of our stuff is, it's great that we have our the headquarters entity that we have. Like I said, the, the, the facility that I got to work in, it was great. I mean, they they really had a great understanding of all these cases and how these cases are just um, intertwined with between states and and internationally. I mean, you know, we talk about right the the world has shrunk. Yeah, <laughs> the world has shrunk everywhere. You know, business wise and believe me, criminally, if probably more criminally <laughs> than business, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, there is just a, a seamless flow between South America, between Africa, between Europe, between the United States, you know, or North America, I guess. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a huge component of what we do. I would say, you know, it was probably probably less than five percent when I first started as an agent. And and I'm, I'm sure it's well over 25 percent of, of what we do now. And it's what we have to do. It is what we have to do. Sure. And I assume that the large criminal drug investigate organizations rather and cartels have embraced technology and probably embraced it a lot sooner than than you guys embraced it necessarily to investigate against it. Have you found that that technology is hampering? And, and again, you, like you said, you're four years removed, so maybe you're not as tied in. But I got to believe even for, mm -hmm. you know, even five years ago, th this stuff was still was, you know, obviously the cyber stuff was was well advanced. Did you find that you were having more difficulty trying to get information that you could get normally before simply because technology existed to thwart your ability to find it. Yeah, no, it, it, investigations. I, I feel like even though we've advanced tremendously, the ability to gather information is somewhat more difficult today. Um, and part of it's just, you know, the realities of, of privacy and then and, and the realities of privacy should be there. I mean, people should feel, 
like they can send an email that they can send a text that they can, you know, jump on WhatsApp or whatever and, and get some information done that I, I absolutely positively get that aspect of it. Um, some of the companies, you know, they're, they're, you know, we've got some very smart, sophisticated companies out there that just don't want to necessarily give up information mm -hmm. right away. And, and, you know, I'm not going to speak to that. That's, that's, uh, that's a whole nother ball of wax, but yeah, it, it's, has it become easier? Yeah. Has it become harder? Yeah. It's, it's kind of that it, it's, it's done both. I mean, do I think back to the old days and say, God, remember when we just did cases where you got an informant, you went out there and you arrested the three people and how great that was to wrap up a case in a month. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. Do I also, am I also honest to say, yeah, we, we did just right the, the proverbial tip of the iceberg, right? We saw what was on the surface. We didn't see what was below the water. And, um, you didn't. So yeah, it's, it's way harder. I, I really truly hope that the, uh, the young folks out there, you know, genuinely want to do this job. I, I, I really do. You know, I had a genuine interest when I did it. I, I'm sure you did too, Darren. Mm -hmm. I was intrigued and I wanted to learn more. I mean, I wanted to learn as much as I was capable of learning. And this, this, this was a great job. And this, this agency and all the agencies I've worked with, there is a ton of things that you Oh, it looks like Rick is, so I got a frozen screen here with Rick on it as he was finishing that that particular thought, and we may have lost him here because it doesn't look like he's coming back. So let me pause this, and maybe we can patch that back in. All right, yep. so I got Rick back with a little technical issue there. But so, Rick, you're making a great point um, to close this out about, you know, the future really of, of your organization, my organization, you know, and, and young folks moving into that field because, you know, obviously the drug – situation is not going to resolve itself anytime soon. And here's a, here's an interesting question. This is a side, side question. I'd be interested because I know you've talked about this 30 years ago. Where do you stand on drug legalization? And I, we don't need a big answer on that. Just like, what is, I mean, that's probably a different <laughs> podcast into itself, but if you are, yeah. you know, you're looking to get into this field, you know, what is drug legalization look like for your organization going forward? Yeah. I mean, you know, when you, we always talk about the big three as the, the heroin, uh, methamphetamine and Coke. I, it, it, that would be a heavy lift for me to say <laughs> it's okay to do those, mm -hmm. that stuff. Um, you know, mar no matter what you want to view marijuana, I mean, I think marijuana is fairly, you know, prevalent. It's, you know, as a, as someone with a child going to a university, you know, I'm, I'm not unrealistic to, to, to the realities of that. So, um, yeah, that, that boy, that's a tough one. I mean, you know, you get the people that say, Oh, it's, you know, marijuana is the gateway drug. Probably not. Probably not. There's many people that have probably utilized, um, marijuana that don't do anything beyond that. So, you know, mar marijuana is, I, I think that train is, is kind of moving along the, uh, the proverbial horses out of the barn. I, I think mm -hmm. that's going in that direction regardless. And I, I think it would be kind of a hard, hard move to kind of pull that one back, but then you go down the road right there and of, of, you know, what's, what's you could make the argument opioids. Sure. I mean, that's huge, huge problem in our country right now, huge, right. huge problem in our country. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's a tough one. You're right. That's uh, there's. I'm sure there are other people that can talk about it a lot more uh, mm -hmm. succinctly and intelligently than I could, for sure. So, how do you think? So, what's the future of your organization? What's the what do you what do you the so the aspiring Rick Cuthberts out there who are, you know, early early or late teens, early twenties, looking to maybe get into law enforcement? What, what do you want to say to them? Yeah, I, I absolutely do it. I mean, I just I don't think you can. I don't know what you can do in life and what you can be exposed to um that you that you would that you are going to get through like dea fbi any of these law enforcement agencies um hey listen I, I i sat in a room in a conference with a you know with a, with vladimir putin uh five years ago um you know we've we've traveled and we've worked with every single, I mean, you name the generals in South America, we've done that kind of stuff. Um, it's awesome. We, you know, we've sat and, and got some of the best, you know, as we call them, the high level briefings and, and just learned about stuff that you would ever do. I mean, the stories that you can tell offline, Darren, and, and you know, this are just, it's great. I mean, I just think of those, um, 
those stories and and just that life that you get to live. I mean, listen, it's it's as close to that. If you think the movies are are you know kind of way out there and stuff like that, yeah, sometimes they are. But guess what? There's a lot of there's a big part of that that's that's real. Mm-hmm. There's a big part of that that's real. So yeah, absolutely do it. I hey, if I was to rewind and say you want to do this all over again, I'd be like, yeah, of course. It was great, great, uh, great people, and uh, a fun job. I mean, it was fun. It was absolutely fun. That's great. I, I wish we could dig deeper into some of the stuff because it's fascinating. The 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 cases you guys had, and what the the just the the manner of the targets that you had to had to had to the opportunity to arrest because I mean, doing cyber, we don't arrest a lot of people, obviously doing the drug stuff you do, you got, you got to put cuffs on quite, I'm sure, I'm sure you could put cuffs on pretty quickly. Somebody. So like when your daughter, you know, when <laughs> your daughter finds that boyfriend, you, I hope that when your daughter right. comes home with her boyfriend, you're going to be lubing up your uh, shotgun to uh, before, before you talk to him. <laughs> Oh, good mm-hmm. stuff, Darren. It's always good stuff. Rick, I appreciate good it. Good Thank, yep. Thanks for letting me come on here. I know you got a truffle movie you got to go watch, so so we will. Uh, you should you should start a podcast on for a DEA podcast. If you want to if you want to do that, let me know. I'll help you produce it. Sounds great. All Sounds right, great. have a good Darren. Night. Great to catch up. Thanks. Bye. So that's going to do it for episode forty five of the Cyber Guy Podcast. Again, I greatly appreciate all of you who are faithful listeners, who tell their friends to listen. Um, One thing I'll note, uh, coming up in September is the National Cyber Summit here in Huntsville, Alabama. I'm actually going to have my podcast stuff set up live on the on the floor there. And so if you are at the National Cyber Summit, stop by the Cyber Guy podcast booth and we'll do a 10 minute interview, talk about cybersecurity, talk about anything else you want. Um, we'll be using that for, for for podcasts in the future. The folks at the National Cyber Security Summit are going to use it for some of their marketing stuff. But as you go through your week, uh, I'm sorry, let me step back. I want to thank Rick Cuthbert again for participating in the podcast this week. Hope you enjoyed his stories. He is a uh, he has uh, got some interesting, I'm sure he's got more interesting stories than he necessarily told us. But as you go through your week, make sure you understand the threats targeting you, assess your risk, proceed wisely, and know knowledge is power. Thanks a lot. Have a good week. <laughs>